0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. We've got another great show for you today. Uh, We're unpacking the mass media campaign around so-called right to know and protections for journalists. Uh, We raise the alarm bells over proposed laws to govern truth and advertising during elections and we trawl through recent Nobel Prize winners and their ideas for how to generate economic growth in the developing world. Uh, to help me through this, I have my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Good to have you, mate. Uh, re- research fellow at the IPA, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. And uh, first time looking forward, panellist uh,
1: Pete Gregory. Mate, I'm very happy about being invited to the Big Kids podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I obviously missed the email about the dress code, but uh, no, look, very excited. Let's do it. It's so Let's good look to forward. have a dress
2: code about. What you wear when you come into the office? <laughs> or,
1: uh, <laughs> I'm just—we recorded the Young IPA podcast after this, so I'm dressed for that. Yeah, yeah, Normally yeah. I wear a three-piece. You, piece you suit actually
0: live in the studio. You've got just—that's uh, your little cot over there. That's and right. Just lurch from podcast to podcast, giving the people what they want. You know. Yeah. So. No. No. Good to have you, mate. And uh, we've got—we well, uh, got some. Great questions for you Mm. later on in one of the segments. Uh, And also, we have our books and culture segment, as always. Today, we look at the late Harold Bloom's masterwork on the Western canon. Uh, Memoirs of the so-called whistleblower Edward Snowden. Classic movie to live and die in LA. Sort of movie you watch when you're up at 3am with a crying baby. And the latest season of the Brummie crime drama, Piggy Blinders. Everyone can tell that that one's mine. (laughs) <laughs> See, the, the pop
1: culture trashy one. That's, that's, <laughs> that's Gregory's.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's no, 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 good. Um, One's pretty low rent as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the one with the baby. Yeah. Uh, don't forget, both podcasts, his and ours, is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, do go to ipa.org.au and join or donate. Uh, we are going to kick off this week with a very topical issue. Uh, all the major daily newspapers and many other media outlets have joined together this week to put the focus on a so-called right to know campaign uh, we a couple of months ago uh, in, back in june on this on this podcast uh, there it was very hot we had uh, australian federal police raids on journalists uh, we had a discussion which actually was a full on debate almost between the two gentlemen on my left about uh, right uh, right to know versus national security considerations in that particular case. But, Chris Berg, what's being asked for this week by the media organisation? That's right.
3: Well, well, what isn't being asked for? So so you you pointed out that this is a very topical campaign. It's topical because the press has made it topical. They get to decide what is topical and what is not. So on Monday, all the front pages of uh, every major Australian newspaper were blacked out as part of the media's what they're calling the Right to Know campaign, as you say. So that's all the nine newspapers, The Guardian, all the News Corp newspapers, uh, the ABC, Prime Media, Seven West Media, Sky News, SBS, uh, Channel 10, and the uh, Wynn Network as well. As you've pointed out, the press is pushing for stronger protections of what they describe as press freedom in the wake of the recent leak investigations that we debated back in episode 21. They have a range of proposals, um, some of which I'm sympathetic for, some of which I think are a little bit questionable. Um, but the highlights are um, they want to be able to contest search warrants. They want stronger protections for whistleblowers. So that's government employees who are blowing the whistle when when they talk to the press. They want restrictions on government secrecy. They want um, reform to the Freedom of information laws which are of course the laws that allow them to request documents out of um, uh, from government agencies and the government agencies uh, are are very resistant to that or typically quite resistant to that. They want exemptions for journalists from prosecution from a number of national security laws and they want defamation law reform as well. Um, Look look, I, I think we should bat around some of the specifics about this but but Pete Um, the IPA has been quite interested in the FOI um, uh, proposal for obvious reasons because the IPA has tried to use those FOI laws against some of the government media, haven't they?
1: That's right, Chris. We use FOIs all the time, and I'm sure there's very deep points about this, but the first point you have to make about every big political topic is the hypocrisy of the left. (laughs) (laughs) I have here, for those watching... A segment, and John Roskam did this on the Bolt Report during this during the week.
0: It is a visual gag. We'll, it is a visual We'll, we'll describe it in a moment. <laughs> it's a
1: component of an FOI request we made to the ABC about why we aren't invited to the drum, which is a show on the ABC. For those watching, uh, sorry, for those listening, it is completely blanked out. The whole page that appears to be 47C. It's just one part of it. So if the ABC can't tell us why we aren't on a television program... It's a bit hypocritical for them to ask that, you know, national security secrets be spread to the people of Australia. Well, no, I'm sort of sympathetic to this. Is isn't of that debate.
0: one of uh, uh, Robert Conquest's laws that uh, everyone is conservative about uh, things they know most about? <laughs> yeah. like, so the ABC fervently agrees that government agencies mm. other than themselves yep. should be made to give more information.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, look, look, look. There shouldn't be a government agency that is also a media provider at the first instance. So that's a yeah. big problem. But yeah. sorry, Andrew, you were All about right, to jump say, in. There.
2: It goes to this question about um, what transparency about what? You know, when we talk about yeah. the government being transparent, which parts of it should be transparent? Their argument in denying our free, effectively denying our freedom of information request is that they don't have to divulge uh, information that goes. It's an input into the production of
3: the TV show yeah, of oh, I a mean, TV show. Yeah, they only have to divulge.
2: They only have to divulge the results. we not
3: quite cabinet level security, um, is what I'm and, saying. You know,
2: no. for the ABC, their outputs are actually a $1 billion, uh, one billion dollar media network. So their outputs are all uh, publicly available. That's that's their argument. Uh, I think there is a question about whether it's a good thing to demand transparency about inputs just in general. Um, you know, we know this when we think about, say, um, corporations or, you know, businesses trying to develop uh, innovations, you know, innovative products or innovative processes. They want to – because that's their intellectual property, they want to keep that secret. They don't actually want transparency about that. Um, and the same thing kind of goes into the policymaking uh, process within government. So I wonder uh, if there is like a, a distinction here that gets kind of conflated perhaps in like a huge omnibus proposal like this one, between uh, access to information and your ability to mouth off about information that you have.
3: I think uh, surely there's a strong distinction between a corporation's internal decision-making processes and the government's internal decision-making process. But I do, I do, I do take your your more your more general point that certainly at the cabinet level, or um, uh, in in the United States, we would say executive privilege. So the decisions, the conversations that allow the executive to come to a decision, you can understand there's a really practical utilitarian reason to protect them from disclosure because you want people to be able to share ideas that won't be on the front page of The Australian in, in 24 hours. So I, I, I can understand that, but I think what uh, – and and the, the media doesn't um, – doesn't go through that distinction very well because they just want more access to information. They want to be able to tell potential leakers, whether those are whistleblowers or whoever it is, that they are protected by laws X, Y, and Z. What I think is most obscene about these sorts of things goes to actually Pete's hypocrisy point, which you you told as a joke, but is is a very genuine one. Um, It's not just about the ABC. It's about the idea that journalists get exemptions to general laws. At all. Yeah, exactly. Like, I am bound by national security laws, whether I like them or not. And there's a lot of them that I don't like. If I'm bound to them. Why? A, a, and, and you know, we have a podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're, uh, we are also, you know, quote, the media in some sense. If I tweet a lot, then I am also the media. Is a a
1: YouTuber? journalists
3: yeah well I- exactly so so and, and and there are downstream consequences for that so if the if the um, journalists get what they want then suddenly you've got to have government departments saying who isn't isn't a journalist mm. um uh, but I, d- I just find the mindset despicable the idea that there is a class of people yeah. who don't have to have to obey general well, I mean, laws.
0: One of the, one of the things that we saw in this, when when the the media got together, and and it's a group of journalists, and it's an in, it's a, a profession. It is a profession, and good luck to them. Um, <laughs> uh, it, we hope that it's never a registered profession. That's why we uh, oppose the uh, Finkelstein uh, proposals, and and um, and thought it was just outrageous. Still do that. Journalists were getting around them because they liked that idea of being registered and having start to build the sort of exclusions that, say, you know, pharmacists have or you know, whatever. But um, uh, their myth making came to the fore because professions do have to have their their myths. Um, and it's it's about brave... <laughs> no, more than, no
3: more than journalists. Yeah,
0: yeah, brave journalists, you know, against the world, yeah, you yeah. Know, post, post-Watergate, you know, they all want to be Woodward and Bernstein and, you know, we've discussed how that brought down journalists. And so even though there was that laundry list of things that you just read out, all I actually heard in all the interviews from all of these outlets was the special role of journalists, the special service that they give to democracy. In fact, there can't be democracy without journalists was essentially the claim. Therefore, they must be privileged over and above everybody else. And so even though they have a laundry list, which as you say, has some good ideas in it, um, none of that actually survived you know beyond the first 24 hours before they just went into this sort of reverie about telling each other how good they are and how important their profession is
3: so so what is it that we do like about this list and i'll, I'll start with andrew and then maybe you no
0: know, I, th-
2: I think that well, what tr- should we do in general? i would say i would say that uh, the proposal to weaken australia's defamation laws is something that could probably attract widespread support among the public of course it, Politically, it's one of <laughs> yes. the hardest parts of it. Because, because everybody
3: wants to buy a swimming pool.
2: Because, because, and because the defamation law protects um, essentially you know, who we call the elite, right? People who are in the public eye, uh, who have positions of influence. Defamation law primarily protects them. And they are the ones who have to make a decision about whether to weaken these laws or not. So the political prospects of that are... Basically, in inverse proportion to how sensible they are, <laughs> um, and that's so. I think that aspect of it, and, and you could say the same thing again, about the whole again, list. though, to be defamation. There. Defamation law is is one of these things that goes to this uh, ability to talk about things that are in the public space. So it's not it, it, binding it up with um, you know a debate about how how effective for democracy transparency is and all of this stuff is actually kind of unhelpful because the defamation law argument would stand on its own two feet on a separate basis, which is just that um, we ought to be free to to mouth off about people who are in positions of influence.
1: Pete, uh,
3: how would you address
2: this?
1: Well, one thing I noticed about this, which sort of uh, in preparation for this podcast, which made it a bit difficult, I think there's a bit of a lack of specificity in this. Like I always come down on the side of government should be more transparent, but there is you know, some kind of role for government secrets. For example, we say, uh, new, okay, so new rules governing what information governments can deem secret with obligations to regularly audit the material being kept from the public. Yeah, but it's like, what? Like, what um, what new rules? So, for you know, like, w- without knowing what that is, how but there, can you say whether you support it or not? But
3: there is an overclassification problem. Certainly there is in the United States, and I believe there's one here as well. Yeah, the way classification works is,
2: um, basically, if you create a document... Um, a government document in certain areas, so I used to work for the Department of Defence, you're in charge of classifying it and you can basically put it as whatever classification you want. You get you can theoretically get in trouble for overclassifying things um, because... Has anybody ever gotten in trouble? No, for- <laughs> you're more likely to get in trouble for underclassifying. So, um, you know, writing something that is, say, secret on the wrong network... Um, is a, is a problem, whereas the inverse is not as much of a problem. So there's a kind of perverse incentive there. But that's why you get this kind of over-classification is that the, all the incentives within the, the secret-keeping parts of the bureaucracy are on the side of... Um, Locking things up.
0: Yeah, I, I want to come back to journalists. Sorry, um, because uh, this, this, this. We don't hate all journalists. This is their actual motivation for this. So there's a laundry list of you know issues which you know come and go. But of course, the AFP raids, and and I can I can understand why. It concentrates the mind of a journalist. Getting him, you know, knock on the door at six a.m. Having and
3: a sock drawer um, rumble through. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, so all so. Notwithstanding anything I just said about the, how pr- the precious little darlings, I can I can understand where they're coming from. And um, but one of the uh, things that's come out of this is Christian Porter then said, "Look, nobody, no journalists are being prosecuted unless I give the sign off." Mm. And, and this was, so, you know... That's that, not that, that, super comforting, no, I have well, to say. And it's also, <laughs> it turned out to be off-message because then, or uh, uh, well, Scott Morrison was off-message because he stood up in Parliament and said no, no politician should be sitting in judgment on this just after Christian Porter had actually dragged the powers back from the DPP. <laughs> now, the funny thing is I, I actually like having the Attorney-General accountable for all this. I mean, if this really is a fundamental issue that goes to the heart of our democracy, that's exactly where it should be. I mean, I'm, uh, uh, you know, Andrew. You're a qualified lawyer, but you recall that once upon a time there were no such things as DPPs. There used to be political accountability for launching prosecutions and all these things. So they've shovelled it off all these bureaucrats, and I I think they've quite rightly brought it back. Yeah, I think
2: I think that is definitely one thing that has kind of fallen by the wayside is this idea that it's actually good to locate a particular power, particularly if it's controversial, in a Person that you can identify and say, "Well, we got a bad and result vote from the exercise of this power, mm. so you're gone." Like that's that's exactly what democratic accountability should be. Um, now, on this on this question though about whether this is a particular power that this is this is that we want someone to to exercise, I think comes down to what it is that we expect from a free press. Uh, is it just that we think? Um, as a natural right say that we would like to to talk about these things that uh, or or do we think in a utilitarian sense that we'll get better government from these kinds of laws I mean those two arguments are actually separate right one would just be that it's um, that you know you don't have the, the government or anyone else doesn't have the right to tell me what I can and can't talk about whereas another argument would be well Actually, by by enabling that in a positive sense or enabling a particular kind of media, we get a better result from government.
3: There, there is a third one. Um, the democratic argument is that the government has no... Right to prevent me knowing about what the democratic government is doing, um, presuming it's legitimate and all that sort of thing. Um, this, uh, so Pete, this um, uh, campaign which was launched on Monday, mm-hmm. um, I think it's fair to say it hasn't really resonated with the public in any great great detail. Um, uh, and
1: uh, it, I, I, there's a um, <laughs> I would ask them, but I could yeah.
0: <laughs> down at cricket training. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the you know the <laughs> big talking point. Nah, um, it so feels
1: like a bit of a beltway issue. It, a little beltway Imagine if black actually, out. The sports section. Yeah, oh, <laughs> they should have done that. Then they would have been... Also, out, right? in the age um, of the digital Sydney, media, s-
0: like who, who looks at a front page of an <laughs> exactly, actual printed exactly. paper they, anymore?
3: I only saw this on Twitter, to be honest. The Sydney Morning Herald um, has a, a line which I really enjoyed. Privately, the Morrison government has indicated scepticism that media freedom, freedom is something that grabs the public's attention. Um, how, uh, how would you... How, how so would, would you attribute say. that? So, some would say. Some would say. How, how, how would you explain that? So, so we are talking about... Um, certainly basic freedoms whether mm-hmm. where you think we're just talking about freedom of speech or media freedom. Why don't you think that this campaign has resonated or do you, th- do you think maybe it has? Well, I
1: think these things take a lot of time to sort of marinate into the public consciousness. I think when we raised 18C back in whenever that would happen, 2012 or whatever, freedom of speech wasn't a big issue for people but freedom of speech has become a bigger and bigger issue for people in Australia and around the West on the back of, you know, campaigning about it and I think maybe people feel like their freedom of speech has been um, impinged upon. But, I mean, no-one knew this was coming, I don't think, um, until Monday, and it's a difficult thing for the public to get their head around, so I think it would take time for people to, you know, get around it. And, And also, I think that, Trust in the press is actually pretty low at the moment, so maybe people don't but care. But
3: it's, it's that trust in the press that really gets me because the mm-hmm. um, what, what I loathe about this is that it's a coordinated campaign on a public policy issue when every other freedom of speech and liberty question has yeah. been treated by the press as, like, just a fun thing to debate. Like, yeah. So 18C, oh, we can write as many controversial columns as we want and you know back and forth and we'll we'll debate this it's a basic freedom individual um uh, freedom to speak but you know we can debate it the sedition laws the metadata data retention laws the encryption laws the cash bans finkelstein Finkelstein banning websites just randomly and ad hoc in response to um moral panics you know all this stuff is just up for debate yeah the, the press will open its pages to every man and his dog but on this because it affects the press, yeah.
0: well, so it's their freedom, and people recognise that. And, and, and I, I, I probably wrap it up with the comment that uh, there is some irony in the you know the age and the Guardian, you know, writing endless columns. How terrible it is that the Murdoch press, you know, that you could read in both the Telegraph and the Herald Sun and the Australian on the same day that you know there was a clear Murdoch line that say corporate tax cuts were a good thing. And how outrageous it was that, you know, News Corp might actually have have a company line on an issue. So that's outrageous. But for every single newspaper in the country with multiple owners to all be saying the same thing...
3: Disgraceful coordination.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Collusion. Collusion. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's right. Spontaneous order. Isn't it an amazing thing? Um, still on democracy and politics, um, uh, there are other proposals floating around this week uh, regarding... Uh, in the wake of the most recent federal election, uh, truth in advertising laws when it applies to politics.
3: That's right. Every um, every time there's an election, there's a um, parliamentary inquiry into the conduct of that election and so everybody can air their grievances. Um, uh, today or, or yesterday, we learned that um, one of those aired grievances is a joint submission by Jason Falinski, who is the Liberal... MP for McKellar, um, uh, alongside Zali Stegel, who is the um, independent MP for Wentworth, calling for truth in political advertising laws. Um, uh, and I'll give a quick quote from their joint submission, so it's co-signed by the both of them, um, Falinski and Stegel. While we can debate concerning competing definitions of, quote, truth, Um, And, Andrew, we will get into that. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Um, Everyone can agree that an objective fact-checker and minimal factual basis can elevate the national conversation (sighs) concerning issues that... (laughs) Bear with me. (laughs) uh, ..concerning issues that matter to Australians and cut through the fake news, fake advertising and fake political campaigning that demeans us all. Um, They join alongside the Australia Institute, the um, Green... Um, uh, supporting a think tank um, out of Canberra in calling for these truth in advertising laws. They point out things like the Medicare, sorry, Mediscare campaign, which was the claims that um, uh, the Turnbull government was going to abolish Medicare. Um, The Liberal ad saying that Labor was planning a car tax um, uh, and various examples like that. I'm sure we can all think of um, questionable claims made in political campaigns. The question is, uh, Andrew, the first question is, do we need political truth in advertising laws? How do you view that?
2: Well, every now and then I walk past an ad, not necessarily a political ad, but any ad. And I think... That's just simply not true, right? So I walk. If you walk past so like deodorant a deodorant, won't help get you the girl. Well, like is a pharmacist, fu- and it was like really? um, it was like a it was like an ad for I won't say which company, but it was like an ad for like a supplement, and it was <laughs> like this is really oh. you know vital for vital for like teenage development or something. And I was like, well, this is extremely li- unlikely to be true, <laughs> and I felt like just screaming, like tell me something true. Like I'm I'm sick of being surrounded by things that are just obvious lies. And so, you know, in that sense, I'm almost (laughs) sympathetic, just in the in the sense that I too get fed up with um, having to adopt a sceptical disposition. All the time in this society, because everything this a general is general
3: complaint about the
2: human condition, though. <laughs> uh, well, that's the that is the big question because <laughs> if there is such a thing as the truth, and and what's what's interesting here about this is. I that, was joking what I said no, no, no. no. <laughs> it is actually the, humans have a soul. Actually, where my my mind went on this, but no, no. The in truth, the in truth, the 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 point that I, the point that I'm making is that. This, this sits kind of uneasily with at least some of the arguments that were made for the last topic about press freedom. If the idea is that a free press and free discussion somehow um, aids in the discovery of truth such that we could pinpoint what that truth is, then you would have some basis for saying this ad or this ad, this ad is true or this ad is false. Um, and so, But if the argument is simply that... Um, you know, quite apart from truth claims that government is more efficient, democracy is better, then uh, when you're free to speak, then obviously there's no case for truth in political advertising laws because any kind of political advertising tells you something um, and that contributes to this free discussion. Pete, what's your take?
1: Uh, This just strikes me as, you know, we didn't like that Trump won. We didn't like that Brexit got up. We didn't like that ScoMo won. The only thing I can think of that explains this is they must be lying to the stupid people because that's why they voted for them. It just feels like this elite thing that they, we didn't get what we want so it must be because uh, advertising isn't true. Well, J-
3: Jason Flinsky won the election as a liberal.
1: Yeah yeah well that's good for Jason but um, <laughs> but in general you know with the Australian uh, what's, what are they called? the Australian Institute uh, and, and the rest it just feels but the whole push for it feels like this kind well, of so
2: arguably because the Liberal Party is itself. Miss well, at least portraying itself inaccurately to the voters <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's liberal. But, but I mean, you know, it's also prissy. I mean, really, you know, pol- politicians will will say or do anything to get elected. I mean, who knew? Yeah,
1: exactly right. That, that exactly right. And and it sort of assumes that people are stupid. I read through the Australian Institute uh, report about it. No, well, I read the summary, and I read I read it, and I'm like, okay, I don't agree with that because I'm a sort of you know laid back classical liberal type person, but there's some real home run examples coming, you know. There's going to be this cracker example, which is going to really trouble me. But there wasn't. It was all like, oh, there were signs in Chinese that looked like the Australian Electoral Commission signs, which were telling people how to vote. Like, are you saying Chinese which people...
3: Are, which you would not catch under truth and advertising laws, to be clear, because it okay. never claimed to come from the AEC. Yeah, exactly yeah, right. Um, uh,
1: you know, um, a Facebook group said Tanya Plibersek thinks that Indians can't create jobs in Australia. So, like, it doesn't say who it is. So some... Rubbish Facebook group that no-one's a member of. You know, it's hardly a big threat to our democracy. Yeah, so. and, and claims
0: like, um, oh, yeah, vote for the independent is like a vote for Labor, you know, which, which uh, is made, you know, all the time on the basis that... Um, you know, say uh, Julia Gillard. You know, was was able to be made prime minister by through a vote for the Greens. So, mm. if if the Liberals had have said before the election, a vote for the Greens is a vote for Labor, yeah. is that a lie? So, are yeah. we going to have a group of bureaucrats yeah, sitting yeah, in yeah, judgment exactly. on whether that's a, a true statement? So, well, okay, it did that, say that's
3: a good thing to raise. So, we have political advertising laws in Australia, truth and advertising laws. Um, the South Australia um, uh, South Australian government has um, has them, or uh, and the um, Electoral Commission. In fact, um, uh, manages what constitutes a true um, uh, a, a truth or a lie in advertising. In fact, the reason I know this is because there's a sentence in both the Australia Institute's um, report and the Jason Falinski and um, Zali Stegel report that says, although the SA Electoral Commission is at times uncomfortable with its real role as adjudicator of the truth, the South Australian example proves that factual accuracy in political advertising laws are possible without using a statutory body as arbiters.
2: Let's so not just skip over that. There's the exact same sentence. Involved. It's the exact same sentence. Well, well. Uh, um, well what a coincidence. But, <laughs> well, that, that, a, that
0: is a, perhaps that's all we can actually say because of some of the laws that we've been discussing. But <laughs> yeah, look, what a coincidence. <laughs> look, I mean, I,
3: I'm not sure, I, Peter and I were talking earlier, I'm not sure that it would get through. Um, uh, uh, Turnitin, which is the um, academic program but yeah. there you go there, this that's is a fine. looking forward scoop, <laughs> <It's> an <absolute laughs> scoop. Okay. anyway same, same sentence in both but the but um so the australian institute is trying to answer this question so they don't want the electoral commission to do it at the national level what they want to use is the advertising standards board and the advertising standards board is quote a private agency that decides whether um advertisements on australian television are um uh, too rude effectively oh. it's not
1: actually private though is it
3: no, no. I mean, it's empowered by legislative framework. In fact, I I interviewed to be on the Advertising Standards Board many, many years ago. They they called. I, I was writing a lot about freedom of speech, and they called call me up and said, "Do you want to interview for this position?" Because they need community people, and so you're was, a community person. I, yeah, I was like 23 <laughs> and um, just have strong opinions about freedom of speech. So we sit down. I flew. They flew me to Sydney. I sat down in their office, and they said, um, "Okay, so what would your?" What will your philosophy be? And I'd be like, I really don't think we should we should prevent anything from I don't think being shown on exist. television. I will vote for well, my own abolition <laughs> <like> <laughs> as soon as I'm appointed to the board. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't really call me back, but you know, <laughs> Funny I got that a that nice nice flight to. Is Sydney. it
2: just as, is it just as hard <laughs> to pin down what a political adver- advertisement is as what the truth is? I mean, it's just like
3: in this era of work in capitalism, this, yeah, where everything
2: yeah. where the personal is political. Um, and you have every ad, like, you know, you can't even sell a, a razor without um, having to, you know, dress it up as some sort of political issue. Um, you know, pinpointing exactly what a political ad is or an ad that has a political effect before you even get into like this question about the truth, what
0: ads are we talking well, about? Well, that's right, because one of, one of the, this is, as um, a, uh, again, a lawyer, you, you might rec- the proper name for the theory, I think the normative theory of the law. This is what happens when laws go on the books and because essentially the argument they've got here is there is a vast amount of law in consumer law, ACCC enforcing a vast amount of law about truth in advertising for all products other than politics. Therefore, yeah. isn't that a terrible thing that those laws don't also apply to politics? You can actually run that argument in reverse. That we're already completely overregulated. It doesn't actually help us get to. They're not helping us get to the truth. But truth- it, it creates this huge compliance uh, burden on uh, everyone involved in the advertising business, creating products, uh, working out the claims that they can make. Um, good for the lawyers. Good for the you know the compliance people that hang off all these companies. Um, but it stifles innovation, it just empowers the ACCC. I'd be running all of these arguments exactly in reverse. But
3: there's an argument for them because the truth in commercial advertising is better seen uh, – laws are better seen as uh, fraud prevention. So they're, they're trying not to scam you out of money. Now, a, a scare campaign is more just asserting that we believe there is but, an but intention if you, if you for if di- to occur, scam you out of your
0: If you believe that diet pills work – then, you know, more fool you. You know, what at what point do there's they There's
3: always a little caveat down the bottom. Does <laughs> not work. Yeah, well I mean does
0: this is this conditions. gonna include is this gonna include to mere conditions mere puff, obesity. M- mere <laughs>
2: puffery. You know, does this include so you know the the common law standard is you know that there's there's lying and then there's no, mere they, sales m- puffery. Mere
3: puffery is always gonna be a problem for you and you're gonna have to wander through life with your sceptical attitude. No, I'm not gonna. I not I, 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 don't, I
2: don't I don't agree. I mean <laughs> if, for example, I was made king
0: then <laughs> I wouldn't face this problem. Now it comes out. Yeah. So, I mean, and there's sorry, at least one scenario at no, the margin. Sorry. No, no, go through, go, I through I that pro-
3: go, go through that logic. So what happens when you're king?
2: Well, then I just declare what is true.
3: Yeah, okay, fair enough.
2: Uh, so think, there's at least, we can agree, yeah, yeah. all people can objectively agree that there's <clears> at least one case in which I don't confront this problem.
3: What is interesting is that um, QED. Uh, in, in the United States where they've got really strong free speech, First Amendment jurisprudence. Um, Knowing lies is actually protected. So making a lie knowingly um, uh, is a protected form of speech under the First Amendment. It's not perfectly protected by any means because there are the standard exceptions like defamation and perjury and fraud and that sort of thing. But um, in a number of Supreme Court cases, the court has found that um, lying about, say, an attribute that you have is actually, you know, is protected freedom of speech the case in that um, uh, the the most famous case in this area was the Stolen Valor Act and the Stolen Valor Act prohibits people from wearing military medals that they're not entitled to Mm -hmm. Um, and the court struck that down or struck parts of that down because you are you, you, you allowed to lie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about um, uh, having fought in Battle X.
0: And, and well, well. So, yeah, because presumably uh, what you'd have to establish for something to be an offence is harm. Yeah, the, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if the act of lie lead, leads to that, harm, yeah, it says then, it in the title. Then, then it's
3: you, stolen valor. I mean, that, they're, they're trying to t- tell a story of harm, and you can. I think you could tell a story. No,
0: of harm. but that's what I mean. Like, it's, it's not saying that if if your lie led to some harm being caused, <laughs> that you are still not accountable for that. It's just saying that the lie in itself is not an offence. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Well,
2: I think we're allowed. We're allowed to have laws that look inconsistent on the surface but have a deeper consistency. I mean, I'm happy to treat things that are actually discreet, discreetly.
3: Consistency-ish, if you will.
2: Yeah, well, no, but the the deeper consistency, you know. What is the deeper consistency?
0: Order. Order. Well, look, the other other meta thing about this is that people lie all the time. You know, the university tests. Um, You know, this is part of the conceit that, you know, you're a good person, you're a good person, you're a good person, I'm a good person. We never lie. Only politicians lie, only corporations lie. I was reading this in Tyler Cowen's uh, Big Business, because <laughs> it's like, that's one of the ideas. It's like those terrible politicians and, and businesses, they're lying to us all the time, but I don't lie. I don't lie to my spouse, to my children, to the, to the school board, you know, when I'm trying to get into a zone, you know, any of these <laughs> things. But it's not, not actually backed up by the facts.
1: This that's might seem like making an obvious point, but how do you establish the truth? Uh, Don't b- I mean. Bureaucrats, yeah, Pete, so exactly. Yeah, no, no. something and, like and, climate change. But this is
3: this is this is the ridiculous um, environment that we're in at the moment. Because um, uh, over the last decade or so, the left have gotten really upset about the idea that there are just so many lies in the press. Mm-hmm. So they've established these fact-checking units that um, draw in academia and geniuses and decide to come to a ruling about whether a politician. Or public commentator has said is is true or not, and so you get these these yeah. these quote empirical but tests have, about they
2: truth. But they have an injusti- They have they have an ingenious system for measuring this though, which is a, a lie is anything that departs from their ideology. Mm. So and and then so it's and, quite rigorous. in yeah, a way. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so it's actually it's actually ingenious because having come up with this ideology like a story, then they look at things that don't match their ideology and they say, well, through a democratic process. We changed that. We changed that norm to match our ideology. Now it's not a lie anymore. Whereas you and I, who may have more of a connection to reality (laughs) and expect that truth would be measured against the world as it really is, uh, we're... Fighting with one hand tied behind our back because <laughs> yeah. we won't define our own lies as the truth, which is what they do.
3: That may be the first time you've ever said I have a connection to reality. And yeah, well, I'm yeah. not so sure. I'm not <laughs> so sure about you, Chris. But
2: everyone else who's not enamoured of Michel Foucault. <laughs> uh, oh!
0: oh, it's, uh, it's war is against postmodernism. broken out again. And I'm looking forward. forward. We'll come back to that in the next <laughs> next time we have Andrew on the on the panel. Uh, meanwhile, it is uh, it's, it's the season for, well, it's AFLW uh, Draft Week, but it's also been the Nobel Prize season. Uh, we've had the Peace Prize awarded and the Prize for Economic Science, and uh, both of these have put the focus on... Africa and the developing world generally. How do we get economic growth and freedom into the developing world? It has, Scott.
3: So, so we talk actually. We talked briefly about the Nobel Prize for Economics, um, which was given to um, uh, uh, experimental development economics. Um, But we also, uh, in the interim week, Scott, we've been talking about how. Well, in fact, the Nobel Prize for Peace is actually a really interesting example of of development economics in action. So, the Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed won the Nobel Peace Prize. And the specific reason that he won the prize was for ending a 20-year stalemate um, uh, after a war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, which is obviously a great thing. But Ethiopia is a really interesting country. First of all, it's the fastest economically growing country in um, in Africa. Uh, Ahmed himself is a reformist. Um, He's launched a round of privatisations and institutional reforms. So when we were speaking last week and I was making the critique about the Nobel Prize winners in economics that they weren't focused on institutional changes, well, it struck us that, um, uh, in fact, this this um, Prime Minister of Ethiopia actually is. And um, that's why, in fact, that's why we decided that, Pete, you would be a magnificent guest to have on the show because... Thanks, guys. ...in fact, you are an expert, an expert, a global expert on um, development economics through your PhD research, aren't you, Pete?
1: Well, I've almost finished my PhD... I feel like I've done my bit on development economics. It's up to Sinclair Davidson to uh, read it, but um, and
2: up to the rest of the world to follow closely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your what findings. I find in there. So, uh,
1: yeah. Was that, what was the question? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you've got your point out.
3: <laughs> now, how, how do you think about these two um, uh, strangely intersecting prizes?
1: Well, uh, I think you know. I used to think the Nobel Peace Prize was stupid until they ordered someone that I did I liked as winning the award, but. um I think, you know, it wasn't just for negotiating peace with Eritrea. He also released, uh, you know, 60,000 political prisoners, um, scrapped their civil society law. He's managed to sort of maintain this kind of peace for the moment within Ethiopia, although they did say at the moment that there's some ethnic uh, violence going on, but that's like no small, no mean feat. So he's done very well on that front. And he has, as you say, privatised some of the economic achievements. So it's a really positive thing. You have to be careful with people in countries like Ethiopia, it can change really quickly and people that start off great. His
2: first action since being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize has (coughs) been to uh, start a fight with Egypt about a dam on the Nile. He was in the media last night Saying that if needed, Ethiopia could raise an army of millions of men to fight <laughs> for the dam. Um, so, although that's, I, I don't know whether he's right or wrong about the dam, yep. um, but I just thought that was like and it, I, on your point. Mm. Things, these things can change pretty quickly, really quickly, and and that gets to this the the, the thing that I, I was thinking about as I was reading about the um, Nobel Prize winners in economics about development economics and things, and and wondering whether the the economic analysis. Um, can tell the whole story in that um, my experience when I lived in a developing country, which was Peru, um, was that the the fundamental problem wasn't necessarily the institutions as conceived. You know that there are a lot of people within the institutions or, uh, or within the government working to have um, you know functioning institutions, um, but it was actually um, corruption, mm. um, which isn't necessarily something that is captured this is a question, by the theory, I mean, the, the the willingness basically to forego, in some sense, your immediate short-term interest to contribute to the development of an institution that over time will provide for the greater good, that seemed to be the root of the problem.
3: No, no, it is precisely captured by that. So so I think, I think we have to divide out uh, – when we – and uh, Pete, you might jump in – but when we talk about the economic institutions – we're talking about how good quality is the rule of law, how responsive mm. is the um, bureaucracy, is there, and, and, it's, and it's measures like corruption. It's measures like, um, uh, is there an opposition? you know? So we can say that democracy is part of the, quote, economic institutions because it means you've got an open rather than a um, extractive environment where people are just trying to take rents and trying to um, uh, take as much benefit out of the corrupt system as possible. And I think the difference though, the, the difference between what we're talking about here and the Nobel winners in economics. So for those who missed the conversation last week, the Nobel winners in economics got their prize for running experimental development economics so you'll do something like you'll take two villages and you'll um, give one village mosquito nets for free and the other village you'll say five cents per mosquito net and you'll see what the uptake is and let's say if they pay for it they value it more then you'll say okay well this is the policy now we will give everyone in the country or everyone on the continent you know, the five cent mosquito nets rather than free mosquito nets And and then you learn it's a what works story of development, and it's and it's not, um, uh, it's not bad science. Mm. Um, it, uh, we might talk about some of the ethical questions in a moment, but it's not it, like like it, it does help us understand more about the world, but it doesn't give us those big buck hits which are the institutional changes. It doesn't deal with the corruption problems. It doesn't deal with democracy problems. It doesn't get opposition leaders out of political prison and is so that,
0: is that, Is that partly because um, – sorry, Pete. Uh, That's right. uh, Talk over the top of me um, uh, <laughs> at any time. But, I mean, you know, I've been hearing this story from uh, economists and theorists and the Francis Fukuyamas and so on about uh, it's about institutions, which it is, um, and it's about, you know, the, the – development trajectory of various societies. This has been around for a long time but it's it's also proven devil, devilishly difficult to actually work out how to do that. It's all very well to say we need to build these institutions and eliminate corruption but it doesn't s- seem to be getting any closer to working how to do that because it, understanding how it fits with a local culture and it somehow has to be integrated with culture and say in, in Africa there are uh, different um, uh, tribal groups, which have have their own distinct cultures. There's different religions everywhere, and and it needs to be connected to that local culture to work. And so, I'm very sympathetic to someone who just said, "Look, why why are you guys trying to figure that out? <laughs> I'm just going to try to figure out how to eradicate <laughs> how to get, malaria. Yeah, yeah, how to get because malaria escape. is bad. Yeah, I'd rather you know I'm watching this thing on Bill Gates at the moment, and what the, what the Gates Foundation is, I'm watching that on Netflix, and it's like, polio, polio was bad, Let's, he's, he's trying to do cleaner toilets, you know, it's mm. sort of, it's the micro stuff while you guys are trying to figure out the macro stuff.
1: Yeah, and look, the, you're right, like, institutional change is really hard, and, and corruption's a really big issue. I was in Cambodia and working for an organisation that was trying to fight corruption. It's like, how do you fight corruption when it's been the way we've done business for thousands of years? Uh, and these institutions take ages to change, and that's what you're talking about. Fortunately, I have a solution for you, oh, Scott. Hard great. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, my notes have just gone to sleep. That's all right. Um, <laughs> yep. So the Atlas Foundation is doing development differently that I've written about in the IPA review. Yes. They address this the fact Terrific that institutional program. change is really difficult. So what they say is that we can't you know, make a place that doesn't have... Uh, that has heaps of corruption, suddenly not have corruption. We can't make them suddenly have a good legal system. But what we can do is make little changes around the margins to those institutions, which will actually benefit heaps of people. So, for example, in India, they reduced business regulation uh, for registering your business, which allowed hundreds of thousands of people to, be, to come out of poverty, like a very tiny change. It's something manageable. It's not changing the whole system. It's not, you know, de- to destroying a culture that's already there, but it makes a huge difference. So that's one way that you can do it. Uh, the other way is uh, this guy is blockchain. He was pointing so at Berg there. Yeah, i yeah, yeah. pointing at Berg. Saying. I kept forgetting that there's no – most people listen to it. So, you know, <laughs> blockchain can challenge a lot of these institutions for entrepreneurs that don't want to – Yeah, well, we had that example them. of property rights.
0: So, mm. the uh, Hernando de Soto's sort of theory that, well, you know, property rights are essential, which is absolutely right. Mm. And you can't – it's not like what, say, Victoria in, in the 19th century, you, you can't wait for parliament to pass a law to introduce Torren's title. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work in the developing world. But you can just go into a village and start identifying property titles. The insight insight here, and
3: I I thank you for raising blockchain. That's right. That means I don't have to independently raise it myself. Um, But the insight here is that um, the problem that we have when we look at these corrupt institutions, we look at a legal system that you need to pay for service um, in, uh, that people get benefits out of that. So it's really hard to displace them. Um, what if we didn't have to displace them? What if you could leave the existing legal institutions where they were and the people who are getting the benefits out of them still keep getting some of the benefits out of them? But you could build new institutions on top, like you layer them on top. Um, And in that sense, what we want to be able to offer um, entrepreneurs who are operating in the developing world, we want to give them the choice. Do they want to write contracts that would be enforced in the potentially corrupt existing legal system or do we want to give them tools so they could write smart contracts on a blockchain that were self-enforcing now not every problem is going to be um uh is going to be able to do on on both um systems but you're going to now build institutional competition which is sort of what you have at the multinational level because you've got a lot of um, global commercial arbitration courts and that sort of thing. But you want to provide that for small businesses as well, and you mm. want to provide that for the for the um, entrepreneurs. And, and Pete, a few years ago when you and I were in Cambodia and what really struck me and has struck me since travelling around that region is that there are so many small entrepreneurs and the, the challenge that they have is um, it, it's not that they lack entrepreneurial mindset or anything, yeah. it's that they, they lack capital in order to build business, they lack the capacity to write the long-term contracts that they need to to um, expand their businesses. So yeah. that's, that's going to benefit adapters,
2: people who are capable of making this uh, this change. And then the argument, I mean, the counter argument would be that you, what you would, what would happen is that the existing institutions, corrupt as they are, uh, sort of r- form a residual thing for people who can't adapt to the, the new system, those people are left behind, trapped in a system that's suboptimal, um, and there's no incentive for the people who've migrated to the new system to actually help them. So it's a dynamic to- process,
3: though, because, I mean, it, it, as more people move onto a better system than the existing system that gets so much benefits out of the fact that it had a monopoly, um, uh, hopefully can start to compete, because they want to keep their rents. And, and they will continue to do so but that's absolutely right uh, you, you're going have two mul- you're going to have a bad system and a good system operating simultaneously and not everybody will be able to use the good system and not every economic activity will be able to use the good the, the, the smart contract system or what have you but it's a hell of a lot better than what we have now.
0: Yeah, no, uh, it's it's a bit like Uber taking over from from taxis. You know, we spent years and years and years waiting for a reform to the taxi industry, but it was easier just to create a new one completely outside that system. Set it up and see what happens.
1: I take your point about, you know, but there's things we can do in the meantime until that happens. That's what basically everyone I argue about this on the radio says. It's like, yeah, but we can do all these things in the meantime. Um, And there is sort of some logic to that. I sort of think Easterly tells, William Easterly tells this great story about how you know, there's all these people dying of diseases we know how to fix which costs like 5 cents to immunise them but for 50 years we've been trying to immunise them through foreign aid and it hasn't worked whereas and what does he do it's like oh but on this day in 2008 50 million kids in North America got Harry Potter books without anyone doing anything <laughs> so let's try and implement that system
0: And what would be behind the Harry Potter system? What would be the distinguishing feature of that? that Free market.
1: Oh, what do you know? Free markets, yep, yep. yep. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. (laughs) Extraordinary. Who knew?
0: Who knew? Everybody, (laughs) as as Gary Wolfram said on that video we have on the website, everyone in uh, Manhattan woke up and was able to go and get their bagel. (laughs) There was exactly the right number of bagels available so that there were no shortages. Who knew? We uh, have reached that point of the program where we discuss our culture picks, uh, what we've been reading, writing or listening to. Who'd like to lead us off?
3: I'll have a go first. Um, So I read, um, last week in fact, I read Edward Snowden's um, uh, memoir, I guess, um, called Permanent Record, um, as everyone will remember. Uh, Edward Snowden was the NSA contractor. He was with um, Dell Company, among other companies who um, was eventually the... Whistleblower, which you gave quotation marks regarding the national security agency's programs that hoovered up massive quantities True. of data and metadata about. Um,
0: I, I did think of using the word traitor, but okay,
3: all right, well <laughs> we can get into that, Scott. So-called whistleblower seemed like a good I'll, compromise. I'll do the introduction and then you can <laughs> you can share. Um, uh, anyway, so the NSA's programs that hoovered up, hoovered up massive quantities of data and metadata about basically everything we do on the internet. Um, uh, so without without batting around too much, was he a trader? Is he a trader? Exactly? What is he doing in Russia? That sort of thing. Um, I, I, I had two big takeouts from the book. First of all, he, he's my age, so um, he remembers the internet as it was in the um, mid nineteen nineties, which is sort of a nice nostalgia trip. Um, he was more online than I was. Chris um, isn't that old, everyone. He's like thirty five. <laughs> How old are you? Thirty seven. Okay. Um, Not that old. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I shouldn't have said. I shouldn't have said. <laughs> Uh, now, so there are two big things. First of all, the disclosure that he made, regardless of whether it was the right or wrong thing to do, was um, that the damage came from the fact that he disclosed it to the public, not to uh, the, the enemies of the United States. And the reason I say that, I, it, it draws from, in fact, what Snowden was doing as a NSA contractor because he speaks at length about a conference that he, um, in fact, presented at, uh, outlining China's cyber surveillance capabilities himself um, and making the point that the Chinese also obviously have classified conferences into what the West can do. Um, so it's not like um, uh, suddenly China knows that we can browse the Internet really well Um uh, that wasn't that. That just wasn't the case. That the to the extent that there was harm from those disclosures, the harm came from the fact that we learned about it. Um, the second thing that I don't think is emphasised enough is the context. So the the, the context in which the Snowden revelations should be understood in the debates that we're having right now. Um, after the Snowden revelations, um, there was a massive public pushback. ...against the big tech companies for allowing this to occur. And the the finding... So he was a Dell contractor. Um, uh, They had worked very closely, the NSA this is... um, ...and the FBI and the CIA had worked very closely with Google... ...with Apple, all that sort of thing. And um, there was a huge public anger about the fact... ...that the tech companies were working with the National Security Agency... ...to violate um, everybody's privacy. In response to that... The tech companies introduced all this end to end encryption that now the NSA and the CIA and the FBI and Australia's ASIO and everybody is very upset about. The fact that all this knowledge came out is why we now have much and much, much safer and much more secure, I have to say, devices with end to end encryption. That's why. Um, Facebook Messenger is moving to end end encryption that 's why everyone uses whatsapp that 's why I recommend everyone uses signal that 's why we're now in the environment we have because of that backlash to the snowden revelations because those Snowden revelations showed us showed the world showed the public that um, there was just a massive violation of privacy going on so look it it's not a it's not a brilliantly written book it's interesting it doesn't reveal too much more, but for people who were involved in that debate uh, three years ago or in 2016 when it happened, it it does have some interest, but mainly for that contextual story.
0: Interesting Where can they
3: buy it? Where can they buy it? From shops. The internet. The internet. (laughs) The internet thing encrypted. It'll be encrypted. He does actually actually imply that a number of people will pirate his book as well. Um, So uh, so I don't know whether that's permission or...
0: (laughs) Whether he's encouraging it. Bootleg. Uh, I might talk about a book I read uh, some years ago, uh, which is uh, by Harold Bloom, uh, who was a New York-based uh, literary critic. Uh, Professor Harold Bloom, he wrote this book, which I, what I am holding up. to it. then. Western Canon, um, The Books and Schools of the Ages. Uh, I've linked to uh, – I wrote a review of that in 100 uh, Great Books of Liberty, a ter- terrific IPA publication, uh, which I've now reposted online. And um, so because everyone listening is of course going to go and look that up and read it, I won't, I won't redo the whole thing. There is a, a terrific, um, it is a classic argument for the validity of a canon that there, is this, there are these great books, they're just great. And you should read them. Is that what sh- he says. And you should read them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The look, other pages look. are just blank. <laughs> this is one. It's, it's just a list. It's a, yeah, a yeah, list that's... of
2: books. These are great. Read them.
0: He does have a list of books up the end, actually, which is now online. I shall. Um, I found it actually on the University of Adelaide uh, website last night. So I'll include that. These are the you know the fourteen hundred things you should actually read.
3: I, I've seen a criticism of Harold Bloom's Western Canon that it's basically a long list of reasons that books are good. But no or long explanation of why certain books are good or plays are good. But there's no sort of argument. Do you oh, well, think that's right? Well, there or? you
0: go. There you go. Funnily enough, so I was about to say I'm not going to go through that list. Okay. Um, and and because he specifically avoids a conservative argument. The conservative argument is you should read these books because they'll make you a better person. Okay. You know, you'll learn this moral framework from reading, you know, Jane Austen or or whoever. Um his argument, I think, is is, is fundamentally uh, individualist and, and liberal one, and um, what he it's actually um, almost evolutionist in the sense that he believes that the distinguishing feature of the modern age is individualism, and the the distinguishing um, figure of the modern age is Hamlet essentially, and that essentially up up until about that point in human history uh, it was all collective and we you know fate was the explanation and so there's and so this is why for him Shakespeare is is you know above everyone else in the canon because he identified that transition so when you know there's that famous line you know the fault produces lies um, not in the stars but in ourselves this was a radical notion because for all of recorded history, people had looked at the stars and said, well, if my life's a disaster, it's because the gods have been smiting me again. <laughs> or, the, you know, if there's thunder and lightning, the gods have been fighting. And instead, it's like, no, it's in us. And so you get Hamlet with his interminable soliloquies. But how amazing are they? Because uh, he's saying these things out loud. And Bloom has a literary theory. He calls it self-overhearing, that it's you discover this inner voice, and um, Bushnell's probably going to hate this, but uh, it's not quite divine spark. But um, you, discuss, you start listening to your own voice and overhearing yourself, and you develop this this notion of the individual. And out of the, on the on the foundation of that notion of individualism, is all of our notions of freedom as individuals and the sovereignty of the individual. So um, there's a lot to the book. There is there is a canon, and it will defend particular writers. But I think there is. And the reason why I put it in, argued for it to be in 100 Great Books of Liberty, is that this is the connection between the literature of the West and freedom. And it's actually an essential understanding, I think. The, rec-
2: the recognition that the uh, individual is flawed, um, it's a fallen character, probably predates <coughs> Shakespeare. But the, the question is, what do you do about that? So, do you, do you think that the individual is perfectible? Or do you think that noting his limitations, that the fault is within ourselves, actually means that there are certain things you're just going to have to accept about the world? Um, so
1: anyway, that, that was just the thought. No, no, I, no, no, I, I thought no, Bushnell was a divine spark guy. No, I'm the I'm
2: they're, they're
0: the, the, the Gnostics. Gnostics. Yeah. I've got to read Big Ideas more. You, you accuse me of <laughs> Gnosticism. No, no, no that's, and that's nicely framed, though, as, as a further question. I, I think Bloom would, would say, and literature is how we explore that, that very question. So read books, everyone. Read books to, yeah. conclude. <laughs> yeah, to conclude. To or, conclude. Or, wa- or watch old movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, Speaking so here's,
2: here's one that should be in the canon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have, I have a, an infant son. He's four months old. And one, things that I, one of the things that I've discovered is that um, when I'm looking after him, I find it very hard to watch things that I've never seen before, because I can go in and out of things that I've seen before. So I was watching on the weekend, a a favorite movie of mine. And one of the, if you've watched a lot of movies, I know Chris, you have, if you watch a lot of movies, one of the great things about watching lots of movies is trying to find like a B-movie that you think is actually <laughs> really good. Like that has something to say that's, it's more interesting than your normal B-movie. Oh, so my that, ducks. So, <laughs> so this one is called To Live and Die in LA. Um, it's the last great movie made by William Friedkin, who's most famous for the, the French Exorcist connection. It. And The Exorcist. And The Exorcist, um, which he made in the early seventies. This is from the mid eighties. This is the mo- one of the great most eighties movies ever. Um, It has original music by Wang Chung. Oh, (laughs)
0: wow.
2: The opening set piece is a terrorist trying to kill Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Uh, The the protagonist is uh, a flawed Secret Service agent played by uh, um, a bow leg of ham called William Peterson, who uh, you might know from CSI, the original one. Um, Anyway, there was a brief moment in the mid-80s where this guy was a movie star, (laughs) and he's the protagonist in this. And anyway, what's great about this movie is it has all these 80s elements, but it kind of emerges throughout the movie and re-watching it uh, on the weekend that it's almost like a critique of the kind of macho 80s cop character. So he gets involved in this, and it turns out that he's actually like a real, really difficult sort of awful person for the other people in his life. Um, and, and anyway, as the movie progresses, it becomes more apparent that he's in over his head. He doesn't know it. He's a lot dumber than he probably realizes. Um, and so, he's, anyway, it's, he's it's both just
3: stupid and toxic. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> what so a combo. It's, yeah. So,
2: it's <laughs> this great, it's this great, like, starts out as this, like, 80 you know, it's got this 80s soundtrack and it's cars driving, you know, it's sort like kind of Ma- Michael, like yeah. a Michael Mann kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And then as it goes on, you're like, this guy it sucks. sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I I definitely recommend that one for if you if you Some like free, if you like Friedkin if you like eighties B movies and you like um, detective things and if you like the music of Wang Chung, <laughs> uh,
0: definitely get around to live and die in LA. <laughs> never never seen it. We'll definitely go to look that one up.
1: There you go. Am I up? So I know we haven't got much time left, so I'll bang through it. But I recently watched. Season five of the Peaky Blinders. So, a lot of people out there would have watched uh, previous episode, previous series. But if you haven't, uh, the Peaky Blinders are a Birmingham razor gang from the 20s who are called the Peaky Blinders because they keep razor blades in their caps that they then cut your eyes out with. So, yeah. and one of the problems I have with this is that I end up barracking for them because, you know, they're the main characters, but they're horrible people that kill people. But this is
2: the thing I couldn't get into this show
0: because mm. who am I supposed to like? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly.
1: I like them, yeah, exactly. So I have that problem as well. Like, yeah, I'm I, like watched,
0: I watched season one, I was a bit the same. I thought, I'm not going to stick with this.
1: Okay, yeah. So obviously, we're you know uh, one out of three so far on *Peaky Finders, <laughs> <laughs> But I end up liking these murderers, and
0: uh, so and, and it's got that guy. Um, he was in uh, *Dark Knight*, wasn't he? Killian. Um, uh, K- I think it's C- Killian, but Killian. Killian Murphy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He, so he's he was uh, the when they set up the. Um, the revolutionary tribunals and society had collapsed. He was the one who was let the out of the crop. asylum. Yeah, Scarecrow.
3: Which is much. always fun because in, he's in a lot of um, Ken Loach movies and Ken Loach is a famously left-wing socialist. So I was like, oh, yeah, this
1: is... Who this recently
2: is... voiced a great opinion.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. F- finish your one. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, so anyway... There's a thing going on in <laughs> yes. at the moment. <laughs> he, like one of the things is the acting's awesome and Killian Murphy's... One of them, and there's a he couple of others. Sam Neal's in it. I thought Sam Neill was Australian until 10 minutes before this podcast when I was researching this. He's actually from New Zealand. Oh, we claim him, mate. Okay. Any,
0: any, any Kiwi that's any good, we'll claim.
1: Anyway, I won't bang on about it too long. It's just – it's a great – it's great fun. It's not a great – there's no major point to it. It's great fun. It's beautifully shot. The acting's great. It's intersecting with some interesting historical times. You know, they just get back from the war. They, You know, there's this battle between the, the cavalry and the infantrymen, you know, the working class and upper class. He ends up going all the way to – Parliament by the series five. No way. And he joins the. Uh, they lose heaps of money in the does crash.
3: He, does he keep the ray, razor blade? And
1: <laughs> he ditches them, but his mates still do because they lose all this money in the crash and have to do a little bit more criminal activity to keep uh, to keep the money flowing in. Anyway, he ends up joining with the British Union of Fascists uh, as like a plot as a um, what's it called? Like a double agent to try and kill. Oh, I shouldn't. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'll say he attempts to kill Oswald Mosley and I won't say whether it happens or not this, how it, how this is it? how
2: this is how you make him sympathetic right so he mm. is this criminal
3: kills people all
2: yeah. this thing well, who can he possibly have as an go, antagonist? Go after a Nazi, a fascist. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. And multiple, so, again.
3: So, so we do we do have to talk about the um, uh, very important thing that's going on in the cinema world at the moment that I've been following very closely. Um, but, but Andrew, why don't you why don't you give a rundown?
2: <laughs> so, Ken Loach is the latest of uh, these old old white male directors. Martin Scorsese.
3: Uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Francis
2: Ford Coppola have previously voiced the same sentiment which is that comic book movies in particular the Marvel <laughs> cinematic universe are not cinema they're not art uh, they're not Coppola, cinema <laughs> Coppola called it uh, like a, I think it was Coppola called, described them as theme parks yep uh,
3: and I think and despicable
2: and despicable and which is strong and the, the response to this, of course, from the people who make these movies and have sold out and have sort of basically given up their talents to do this,
0: um, is that... Oh, no, John Favreau, just, we're talking you know, about you, mate. It's just the same, as, <laughs> it's the
2: same as if I was making a Western, or it's the same as if I was making a gangster movie in the 30s. It's just the genre, um, but there's still some real art involved. Um, and of course, the response to that is, well, you know, Westerns were shot with cameras in the desert, <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a whole lot of challenges that went into making even a B movie. But challenges
3: mm. don't make it up, though. To be fair,
2: uh, but you know, standing in front of a green screen, going, <laughs> you know, "We're the green screen as, behind us," as, as, as yeah. like a, as like you know, some state, some sort of stagehand waves like a moving piece of green fabric in front of you. If you have to <laughs> pretend to something.
3: No, I but mean, there is. There is this. Di- this dispute comes off the back of an. Uh, was it last week or the week before we spoke about someone had gone to see The Joker, or was mm-hmm. it you, Scott? Um, Both. Uh, uh, and and The Joker Sexted. is Sexted. is like an attempt at building an art movie within the constraints. Of a superhero genre, because apparently you can't make movies that aren't the superhero genre. So if you're gonna tell a story about a disaffected young man, it has to be, you know, Batman's nemesis.
0: Yeah, and then you debut it at the Venice Film Festival, <laughs> um, which to, is, to try to make it a, an art movie, we, yeah. which
3: is just just a, a weird thing that's happened. And I guess you know, in the sense that, um, uh, in the sense that they're trying to make movies out of superhero. genre, then I guess that's a good thing, but wouldn't you say
2: Like, the superhero genre, like, as a specific thing, is terrible, but the, the superhero story is much broader. So, for example, Gladiator is a superhero movie, in reality. So there's an origin story in the first act, and then he has this, like, incredible fighting power. He's essentially invincible. Um, and the, the story progresses in basically the same way. Here is one man against the Empire, has a particular talent, uses it to save the world, As, an,
0: as a nemesis. Yeah, so
2: it's more or less communist. a superhero story. Um, Th- this so that, is very
3: Joseph Campbell of you, I have to say. There's the idea that there's only one real story. <laughs>
2: no, and no, no, <laughs> no there's, there's, there's at least 12. <laughs> 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 the, uh, no, but the, the point is it's not the, it's not the story arc itself. It's the, all the things that go into to telling these stories. It's all the fan service it's all the Chinese Communist Party service it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's all of the little it's all of the decisions that are made along the way to turn it into the most maximally profitable product uh, that compromises it as an art form I think that's what Scorsese is trying to say because he's not against spending 150 million dollars to de-age Robert De Niro for his latest Netflix movie. <laughs> yes. okay. so he's not he's so not he's against <laughs> that. He's not
3: anti-selling out, to be clear. <laughs> yeah,
2: <that's laughs> right. Spending a lot of money to do you know digital. Every single shot in The Wolf of Wall Street is digital. Is a digital composite. Right. Almost every single
0: shot. You've but I know that. So he drove into the uncanny valley with um yeah The Irishman. I think I st- I stuck up by the way the last time we talked about the. Uh, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, I think I said, well, yeah, but what, what about, you know, Thor 3 with, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Watiki, and as director, and I think, Andrew, you said, that's one. That's one out of 50. <laughs> I'll give you that one. And that was about it. Uh, I'd like to say... Thank you very much to our panelists today, Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Andrew Bushnell. Thank you. And a huge thanks to our um, uh, for coming over from the other podcast, Pete Gregory. No problem. Thanks for having uh, me. So, been... so we'll call you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. Yeah, stand by that phone. One day it will ring. Uh, and of course, uh, the aforementioned producer uh, for Looking Forward, Josh Stranger. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.